It's Monday, September 10th, 2001, the first full work week after Labor Day, and the end of a summer whose biggest box office hit was Pearl Harbor. We've been trained to think that we're invincible. And now our proudest ships has been destroyed by an enemy we considered inferior. We're on the ropes, gentlemen. That's exactly why we have to strike back now. We're preparing an attack against the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, sir, to keep I'm our... talking about hitting the heart of Japan the way they have hit us. The events in the movie seemed like distant history. The likelihood that the United States would ever be attacked again on its own soil seemed impossible. But this morning in Washington, D.C., history seemed to be repeating itself. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, was about to address Pentagon officials. Rumsfeld held this job more than a quarter of a century earlier when President Ford made him the youngest Secretary of State in U.S. history. Serving alongside Rumsfeld in Ford's White House was CIA Director George Herbert Walker Bush. And Ford's Chief of Staff was an ambitious young man first hired by Rumsfeld named Dick Cheney. Now Bush's son was serving his first term as president. Rumsfeld was back as defense secretary and Cheney was vice president. Rumsfeld was in no mood to deliver a nostalgic speech that morning. In fact, he was about to outline an entirely new vision for the Department of Defense. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. Rumsfeld wanted to run the Defense Department more like a business, one where new ideas were encouraged and bad ideas were eliminated. The reason was simple. Governments can't die. So we need to find other incentives for bureaucracy to adapt and improve. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. Rumsfeld ended with a preemptive strike against political criticism. Some might ask, how in the world could the Secretary of Defense attack the Pentagon in front of its people? To them, I reply, I have no desire to attack the Pentagon. I want to liberate it. About the same time that Rumsfeld was giving his speech, five men checked into the Marriott Residence Inn in Herndon, Virginia, about 20 miles from the Pentagon. They had reservations to fly out of Dulles Airport to LAX on American Airlines Flight 77. At least that was the destination on their plane tickets. The men had other plans for the flight. In less than 24 hours, Rumsfeld wouldn't be talking about saving the Pentagon in a figurative sense. He'd be trying to save it and hundreds of its employees from a real attack. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed. That looks like a second plane. That just exploded. We I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did. That was and that yes, and that's the second explosion. The you could see the plane. It would appear come in that there the has right been another major explosion, this one in the nation's capital. In less than two hours, America experienced the greatest terrorist attack in world history. Nearly 3,000 people died, another 6,000 people were injured. President George Bush visited the World Trade Center. He climbed on top of the rubble and grabbed a bullhorn to address the crowd. I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, 
for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. Coverage of 9-11 dominated the news 24 hours a day. Pollsters wasted no time measuring the nation's mood. The poll also showed that Americans wanted a military response that was swift and aggressive. In fact, half of respondents feared that the U.S. wouldn't go far enough in its response. 83% of those polled favored forceful military action. A few days later, additional polling showed sky-high support for the way President Bush was handling the crisis. But the most promising poll results, the most inspiring ones, reflected the American people's resolve, tenacity, and courage in the face of its greatest national threat. It was an incredible moment of national unity and of shared grieving. In their darkest hour, the American people showed their grit their resolve, and their solidarity. But just five years later, this would evaporate. America's war effort in Iraq registered the lowest level of support in the history of modern warfare, even lower than the Vietnam War. But this is not a podcast about the Iraq War. In fact, it's not even a war story. It's a real-life horror story about four highly decorated military veterans accused of a crime they didn't commit. It's about a Justice Department more interested in wins and losses than truth and justice. It's about a political persecution that contains more prosecutorial misconduct than a John Grisham novel. Critical evidence was withheld. Other key physical evidence went mysteriously missing. Witnesses were tampered with, and the lead Iraqi investigator is believed to have ties to an Iranian terrorist group hostile to the United States. This is the story of how four American veterans became prisoners of war in their own country. Like September 11th, it's a story of tremendous tragedy, of lives lost, families going bankrupt, marriages falling apart. It's about cowardice and it's about greed, but it's also a story of resilience, of loyalty, of courage, and about four American vets who put integrity and honor above their own personal comfort and safety. We will pass through this time of peril and carry on the work of peace. We will defend our freedom. We will bring freedom to others and we will prevail. May God bless our country and all who defend her. This is the story of Raven 2-3. Most Americans have a story about where they were when the Twin Towers fell. The sight of those buildings falling over and over on television for days on end crystallized a fear that we would never be safe again. 
Some of us became afraid to use mass transit or gather in public places or even leave our homes. For others, like Nick Slatton, Dustin Hurd, Paul Slough, and Evan Liberty, 9-11 meant something quite different. So my family has a long history of military service. Anytime there was a call, every generation has stepped up to answer the call. And it was instilled in me at an early age that I should serve my country if the country needed me to serve. Nick Slatton first heard the news in his English class at White County High School in Sparta, Tennessee. He was only 17, but he made a critical decision that day. He was not going to be a spectator in the coming war. He was going to participate. I always looked up to his dad about his military history. You know, he, he's, he's wanted to be in the military since he was a child. Um, we, I, in a letter I wrote for Nick's lawyers recently, we you know, discussed how, you know, when we were kids, Nick would joke about, you know, somebody would ask him, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, my mother would ask him, what are you going to be when you grow up? And he'd joke about, you know, I'm either going to be a dancer or in the military. And he'd say, you know, I can't dance. <laughs> so he knew what he was doing uh, when he was young. And then, uh, you know, as we got older, that was just affirmed. At the end of school that day, Nick walked into the local recruiting station and enlisted in the Army. Less than one month after his graduation in 2002, he was dressed in fatigues and making his way through boot camp. I was very proud to be a part of the 82nd Airborne Division. The 82nd is America's strategic response force. We could be anywhere in the world in 18 hours, jumping out of an airplane and fighting our nation's enemies. So I was proud to be a part of that. You have to volunteer twice to be a part of that, once for infantry training and once for airborne. When he joined the 82nd Airborne, Nick Slatton became a one percenter, part of the one percent of U.S. citizens who enlist and serve in the armed forces defending the 99% of us who stay safely at home. Slattens have been farming in Sparta and serving their country for five generations. 200 miles south of the Pentagon, a U.S. Marine named Dustin Hurd and his unit were doing a practice drill at the Armory Compound in Norfolk, Virginia. They were practicing how to recapture a U.S. Embassy from terrorists when their captain pulled them aside. Two airplanes hit the World Trade Center, he told them. We're all like, yeah, okay, cool. This is part of the drill. And he's like, no, really, this, is, this isn't part of the drill. This is real life. And I know it didn't dawn on me until they actually started passing out live ammunition. And I was ordered, uh, hey, heard lock and load the 50. Well, I went back over to the captain. I said, hey, sir, you know, you're, we're aimed in on a base housing unit. And he said, I understand, but go ahead and lock and load it. And I said, Roger that. I locked and loaded the 50, and that's when it really became real, loading the 50 cal on American soil. Dustin was 20 years old from a small town in West Texas called Alney. Alney is a dozen or so miles from Archer City, the windblown town in the last picture show. It's just like the movie portrays it, desolate and grand, more cattle and pump jacks than people. Long before he graduated high school in 1999, Dustin knew he would join the military. I joined the military because I looked up to my dad's buddy. He was a Green Beret. His name was Chris Tackett. He would send me all of his old stuff. Me and my buddies would dress up in military camis and play soldiers whenever I was young. I knew then what I wanted to do. Now it was just which one to join. I ended up choosing the Marines. I thought about it for a long time, looked into all of them, and, you know, they say the Marines were 
a little little tougher than the rest, a little harder than the rest, and so I was up for the challenge, and that's what I decided to do. Dustin joined up a year before the September 11th attacks. He chose a unit whose acronym was FAST and whose mission was to defuse terror attacks across the globe. He trained in counter-surveillance, fighting in close quarters, and urban warfare and personal security. Soon after that drill in Norfolk, Dustin headed to the Persian Gulf. He was among the first American troops waiting at the fast base in Bahrain to invade Iraq on March 20th, 2003. Over 90 minutes beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq, that U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Paul Slough was cleaning his Bradley fighting vehicle with the rest of Alpha Unit 315 at Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. At around 9 a.m. on September 11, 2001, his lieutenant walked onto the tarmac and told Paul and his buddies that the United States was under attack. The funny thing was, they'd been talking about which hotspot they wanted to see if their quick reaction force was deployed. Rick and Vivian West informally adopted Paul when he was 13 years old. He was working on their family cattle ranch in Dickens, Texas for extra money. The West wanted their son to see the world and go to college. He always, he'd take care of this ranch as good or better than I do. And I mean, you couldn't ask for a biological son to work and do any more than he ever tried to do. PJ was pretty much a realist. He knew that his family didn't have no money and that we couldn't afford it. and. He was raised out here with us. Like Vivian said, there's not a whole lot here. So me and him talked about it. And I really pushed him to join the military for the simple fact of getting out there and seeing the other kind of people that's in this world. The little town that we live in, you don't get exposed to a whole lot. And I was hoping, and Pete, Paul, PJ was hoping to, that he could go to, military and put in his time and possibly retire, but get a GI grant for college. And when he got into the military, he was really wanting to go through the Rangers and become a Secret Service agent. Paul reported to Army Boot Camp in Fort Benning, Georgia, in the middle of a torrential rainstorm. It was Friday the 13th, 1999, and he was 19 years old. He'd never been out of Texas. That would change within a year. He deployed to Bosnia as part of a United Nations peacekeeping force. The mission was to keep peace between Christians and Muslims in a half-destroyed village not much bigger than his hometown. To get to meet other people within the world, um, in the Eastern Bloc and even the Middle East, I, I got to understand that we're really not so different, um, given the, the separations of the regions of the world. and. Um, I went in with a lot of preconceptions and come to find out a lot of those preconceptions just weren't true. Paul used his own brand of diplomacy to trade his pocket knife for a Russian soldier's beret and medals. He fell back on his Texas Spanish to talk to Portuguese troops who were sweeping for mines around the village. But the communication he enjoyed most was visiting schools with his unit. 
He had his mom send pencils, pens, and candy and care packages so he could give them out to the kids. The Serbs at the time were still attacking. Um, there was some, even some infighting as far as like water and resources and uh, the stuff was kind of limited as far as electricity and water and, and so there was even just day-to-day -day stuff that we would go with our lieutenant and, and other folks that were there to make decisions and try to help really just in logistics and, and, and to see these people receive fresh water and, and food and medicine and, and get to hang out with kiddos in the school that was that was always a highlight. Evan Liberty was cleaning his room at the Marine Corps barracks when word ran through Camp Lejeune that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. He didn't think much of it. He assumed it was a small plane and an accident. He kept on task. When the second plane hit, he ran to a friend's room to watch the news and saw the first tower fall to the ground. At that moment, everything changed for him, for the U.S. Armed Forces and for all Americans. Most people wouldn't take a 16-year-old kid seriously when he insisted on a life of service. But that would have been a mistake with Evan Liberty. Evan and his friend Chris were basketball stars in their hometown of Rochester, New Hampshire. They had other prospects, but life as an athlete never held the same allure as the honor of serving his country. I want to say early on in our high school years, we talked about the Marine Corps because my uncle was in... Uh, who was a big influence on my life, and I know his uncle was in. Um, so I would say probably freshman or sophomore year, we had we had talked about going in, and that you know that was always my plan, and I think it was uh, something that he always had in his mind to do as well. It was not very common. Uh, there was some pressure from other people, uh, basketball coaches. And other other folks saying, "Oh, you should you know think about college, going to college." But uh, you know, something that I always wanted to do was go in the Marine Corps and serve, and and so did Evan. It's just who he was as a person. The two friends went off to boot camp together, but ended up on opposite coasts. Chris went to Camp Pendleton in California, and Evan to Camp Lejeune. But they kept in touch through emails and phone calls. Chris remembers when Evan found the job that would define him, for better or worse. He pursued heavily to go into Marine Security Guard School. So he was accepted into that program um, very early on. I was actually kind of surprised myself that they let him um, go into that program only being at his, at his duty station for a year. Um, so that's just, again, part of who he is. He wants to... Um, do more and being in, you know, MSG duty, you're guarding the embassies, you're, you're there to protect people. The 2nd Marine Division, Evans' unit, went on high alert for months, but he never deployed. Instead, he was selected for the Marine Security Guard Battalion, a huge honor, and sent to Cairo. He was there guarding the embassy when the U.S. invaded Iraq on March 20, 2003. Evan watched fellow Marines like Dustin Hurd deploy to war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan and thought about his future. He racked up medals and commendations and was promoted to sergeant for personally guarding President George W. Bush, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Secretary of State Colin Powell. But it wasn't enough. When his tour ended in 2004, he wanted to make sure he'd use his skills in combat. He reached out to a private military company that had just won a big contract to protect American diplomats in Iraq. 
The company was called Blackwater Worldwide. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It is written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Kyle Hartford edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Tina Graff. The music and score were composed and performed by Aaron Fullen. Our theme song is written and performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Joe Compton, who brought this story to our attention. And special thanks to our families and friends, particularly Anne and Neil Corkery, for their kindness, wisdom, and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt that can never be repaid to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedoms and risking your lives so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this series, please visit thinkagain.me. That's thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary sources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects as well as the award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thank you for donating so much of your time and talent to this passion project. We will see you soon.